do I think Bitcoin is going to surpass, would, would, would Bitcoin surpass gold's market cap in that case? I do think it would. Do I think that, I, I continue to think, with all respect, to, due respect to Michael Saylor, I think I would much rather hold gold, you know, the 12 trillion in gold than the 128 trillion in the bond market, that's in the global bond markets. Like that to me is the real, that to me, because look, it is, it is in a number of ways Bitcoin better than gold? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple ways in which gold still does better. We can talk about those later. Uh, those sure. should change. But the biggest is, is gold's face value can rise. Gold can go to a million bucks. There's no reason it can't. The Fed can make it go to a million bucks tomorrow. They could come out tomorrow and say, we now value gold at a million bucks, and here's a million bucks fiat, and it's on our balance sheet. Oh, by the way, the U.S. is completely out of its debt crisis. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys, instant buys, and wire purchases up to $100 million. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live brings on great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, Luke Grauman, CEO of Forest for the Trees and macro analyst and Bitcoiner joins us. I hope you enjoy this one. Glad you found your way here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Swan Signal Live. This is episode 51. We're here today with Luke Grauman. He is the CEO of Forest for the Trees. And we're going to get into this one after a little bit of shilling from Swan. I want to let you guys know what we're up to here at Swan Got some exciting things to talk about. We have just recently launched Swan Private. Uh, this is to meet the demand that we saw coming in after after Michael Saylor really kicked this trend off of corporations putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets last August and then just really doubling down with his uh, his bond, corporate bond, corporate debt offerings uh, to buy more Bitcoin. Uh, it's just been amazing to watch him operate in this space and just really uh, aggressively go after Bitcoin uh, with inc with incredible conviction. Uh, in response, we've seen a lot of high net worth individuals, uh, trusts and corporations coming to Swan asking if we can help onboard them and uh, help them start accumulating Bitcoin. Of course, we can and we have been doing that for quite some time. Uh, so we decided to formalize a division called Swan Private. Uh, you can. We just launched a couple of weeks ago. You can find it at swanbitcoin.com/private, and uh, we can help you if you're looking to acquire at least a hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin over the next twelve months. Uh, but we can also uh, help very, very large companies with up to one hundred million dollar buys with no annual limits. So check out Swan Private at swanbitcoin.com/private. And of course, we are also offering and continue to offer our core service, which is automatic recurring buys, the easiest in the industry, the cheapest in the industry with 0.99% fees, uh, 60 to 80% lower than, than uh, Coinbase for the same uh, service and about 50% lower than Cash App for automatic recurring buys. Uh, of course, we also offer instant buys, our smash buy, so you can uh, buy on the dip, which uh, Swans have been doing in earnest during this particular dip and uh, and the previous dip, we're scrambling to uh, meet demand uh, on these dips, which is awesome. It's great to see strong hands, uh, convicted hodlers uh, working with us as SWAN members. 
uh, and buying up these dips, which is exactly what should be going on, especially here in a bull market. Uh, so we're happy to see that. Uh, we also like to start thinking about, you know, these automatic recurring buys, this uh, narrative of pay yourself in Bitcoin or pay me in Bitcoin that we, we've been hearing from Russell Okung, uh, NFL player, uh, that he's taken half of his salary in, in Bitcoin this year, which is awesome. And you should do the same thing. Any automatic recurring buy service can do this for you. You should, you know, retain fiat to pay your bills. You don't incur tax burdens, uh, you know, in terms of getting your entire paycheck in Bitcoin. Uh, that obviously has tax implications. So pay off your fiat denominated bills and debts, and then whatever you have left, uh, just, just stack it into Bitcoin. So you can set that amount uh, into your plan by daily, weekly, or monthly, and we'll automatically pull that fiat from your bank account and turn it into Bitcoin for you. And uh, another thing that we're also notice, known for is automatic withdrawals. I think we are the only business in the industry to offer this service. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we do it in uh, a way that's really the Bitcoin best practice way. Uh, so you can set uh, add an address and we'll automatically uh, send you an email to confirm the withdrawal. And you can even use an XPUB, which is uh, basically a way for us to generate like 500 addresses and we'll rotate a fresh address with every withdrawal. So that is uh, a good practice for privacy reasons. And we do have a team full of Bitcoiners who are dedicated to doing this uh, the best way possible, the, the most Bitcoin way possible. And uh, that includes a dedication to Bitcoin education, including this show, Swan Signal Live. So let's dive into it with Luke Groman. Uh, Luke, welcome to the show, man. You are CEO of Forest for the Trees. You're uh, a macro analyst. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of Bitcoins will have heard from you quite a bit on Preston Pish's show uh, with Lynn Alden and, and other macro uh, Bitcoin friendly macro analysts uh, such as yourself. Uh, why don't you just give us a quick introduction of you and your business and, you know, why you care about Bitcoin? Absolutely. So thanks for me on. Uh, Forest for the Trees or FFTT is a uh, macroeconomic uh, thematic investment research firm I founded seven years ago. Um, had spent nearly 20 years on the uh, in, in finance, uh, primarily on the sell side and in investment research and investment research sales. Uh, I had been um, uh, one of the editors of a, of a research product uh, uh, that connected dots for investors and for clients of the firm uh, at, at both firms, uh, at Midwest Research and then uh, Cleveland Research Company after that. Uh, struck out on my own in 2014. And what we do at FFTT is aggregate a large amount of uh, publicly available uh, macro and thematic data points trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks where uh, excess returns will accrue to companies or sectors or asset classes uh, set to participate in those economic or benefit from those economic bottlenecks. And so one of the biggest economic bottlenecks we've been describing for a number of years has been effectively what is uh, the first bursting global sovereign debt bubble in 100 years. Uh, and so when you go back to the year 2000, uh, we had a tech bubble, uh, it, uh, it, it burst. It was kicked upstairs to the banking system via a housing bubble in 2008. That burst, it was kicked upstairs to the sovereign by virtue of sovereigns bailing out uh, banks and, and pretty much the entire system. Uh, and now we've got a sovereign debt bubble. And the challenge is that when you have a sovereign debt bubble, 
uh, sovereigns can't default. They can they can always print the money to fulfill their obligations. Uh, and so if you have a sovereign debt bubble, what you really have is a fiat currency bubble. And so it's a big uh, dynamic of what we've been talking about. And it it ties back to Bitcoin uh, when you describe it like that in a pretty obvious way. And so it's been one of these things where uh, we've we really come at Bitcoin from the perspective of a macroeconomic standpoint in and uh, as an analyst rather than uh, as uh, a technologist. So it's it's a bit of a different angle, but I think it's uh, I think it's helpful uh, in when you marry the, both of those uh, both the, the the macro view and the technologist view together. Yeah, absolutely. And we do that a lot on this show. Uh, we do have a lot of macro analysts on the show to try to give Bitcoiners more of a holistic view of the in context of where we find ourselves and how Bitcoin fits into this global economy. It's awesome to see Bitcoiners really uh, coming up to speed and learning a lot about not just what money really is, which is a question that Bitcoin forces upon us when you when you find Bitcoin and dive down that rabbit hole. The initial question that really sort of puts you into all the different side tunnels of the rabbit hole is what is money? Uh, and we're all often surprised or many of us surprised who don't have sort of that gold bug or libertarian background or Austrian economic background uh, to find out that what uh, we are using or calling money now is a complete aberration of history. Um, so when did you uh, what did you study in college and like when at what, at what point in your life did you sort of have that moment where you were like, oh, this is what money really is. And what we're living with now is is not that it's something different. So I, I, in college, I was uh, actually went to school to be an architect, um, and the uh, uh, University of Cincinnati has one of the best architecture programs in the country. I got in and uh, got about a quarter and a half into my education and realized I didn't want to be an architect for the rest of my life for any number <laughs> of reasons. So fortunately, uh, I had also chosen Cincinnati because they had a great ed uh, uh, engineering program, great uh, business school, and so uh, I transferred, studied finance and accounting. Uh, and loved it. Uh, worked, like I said, joined uh, into the uh, sell side research business fairly early in my career. Uh, worked my way up. In terms of when, uh, what was really an epiphany moment, I guess, in terms of the money system for me, it was really in 2008 um, when the system, uh, really maybe 2007, uh, and, and then into 2008, um, it was apparent to me. When I mentioned before, we we're doing investment research. Uh, we were real pioneers in doing bottoms-up fundamental channel checks. So we, as a firm, were talking to private distributors, suppliers, etc., of publicly traded companies, and you can build up a mosaic of what's going on in not just at these companies, but then uh, I had a real knack for connecting these dots and, and figuring out what's going on in the real economy uh, from a macro perspective. So fall of 2007, I actually went to 100 percent cash in my own uh, portfolios, uh, because based on some of the things I was hearing, it was apparent to me that there was a high likelihood that the system was going to collapse. Um, uh, banking system, economic system, et cetera. And so I, I kind of went through that whole process um, in a pretty good position because I was not losing any money. I was, I was sitting in cash, watching assets go down. Um, I, I had access to some of the best information in the world so I could see it happening real time. Uh, but when, in the, when the real epiphany for me happened, I think it was in late 08 or early 09, when in particular when uh, the Fed did what I, what I call the first big QE, where they 
created a trillion dollars and they bought a trillion dollars in, uh, in treasuries, uh, which was effectively helping to finance the US government with printed money. And so for me, it was just this recognition that in a world where there are finite resources, finite time, finite energy, um, and, and then to have a money system based on one actor openly uh, printing money to finance itself to me seemed like uh, just a violation of, of the rules and it's in some basic level. And that's when I really started getting more at the time into gold uh, and, and um, uh, that was really, I think, sort of a, a big awakening down the path for me, I guess, if you will. So then you must have been, I mean, predisposed to understand the Bitcoin value proposition uh, when it when it came to your attention. Uh, what was that moment like? When did you discover Bitcoin? And um, was it something that you were immediately like, you know, oh, this makes sense. This is something that's an alternative to gold and it's, you know, for the digital age. And maybe this is uh, something substantial here and not just magic Internet money. <laughs> Yeah, for me, it made sense right away the first time I heard about it. Um, yeah. From the standpoint, and the reason I say that is, you know, uh, my approach on gold was really coming from an angle of uh, peak cheap oil. So you could see very clearly in the energy statistics and the energy field production. Um, I, I had read the book in 2002, I think it was Matt Simmons, uh, Twilight in the Desert. And you could see where there's this peak cheap oil angle where the world was finding less and less oil and the oil it was finding was more and more expensive and we had just seen oil go to 150 dollars uh, and so to me it made no sense for an energy exporter to produce energy that was increasingly expensive and sell it for dollars that would be then turned around into debt that was yielding zero effectively by that point in time and debt that was being created at amounts at exponentially growing amounts while production of energy was stagnating and um so that that angle it did and 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 for for money that was being printed to help finance those treasuries so to me i came at gold from a perspective that it just seemed clear to me that I wanted to own gold because you can't have a global economy based on energy and that energy being sold for this printed money at 0%. That didn't make sense to me. And I just figured that we would start to see a transition over time to some sort of more finite neutral asset that reflected the reality of peak cheap oil some some sort of asset that could float in price um that like, like gold uh could once rates hit zero and so when i first i give that all as background uh by way of background as it relates to bitcoin because when i first heard of bitcoin i want to say it was probably i don't know 2011 maybe 2012 who knows it was zero hedge started writing about it um, I, I give credit because I remember reading um, something that uh, Raul Paul had written about it. I want to say in his Global Macro Investor in 2012, maybe, maybe 2013, mm -hmm. um, something like that. The energy connection within Bitcoin, it clicked immediately for me uh, in terms of I get it. So it's, it's basically my whole objection in my own mind, the reason I bought gold 
uh, being that it makes no sense. If I was an energy exporter, I would not sell my finite energy, my more expensive energy, for money that's getting cheaper and cheaper to produce. That doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and I would start to swap that for gold. That's what I would have done had I been an energy producer. Uh, uh, so when, I, when you look at the Bitcoin side of it, Bitcoin was basically solving for that through the, you know, through the, through, um, uh, except with electricity instead of with oil. And so I got it right away uh, from that angle. And I wish that had been the end of the story. I wish I would have, you know, bought a hell of a heck of a lot more than I did. I didn't know how to buy it. I didn't know where to buy it. First time I bought it was probably, I don't know. I, I know I bought it on Coinbase in the first half of 2013. So without the price chart in front of me, I mean, I, I think I bought it from call it 500 bucks up to 1300 or 1200 or something like that. Um, and owned eh, enough to make a difference. And then at the end of 2013, I, I left my firm and uh, uh, started FFTT and I needed startup capital. So right. I, I had, you know, I didn't understand it well enough at that point because I had different buckets of capital. I could say, well, I could sell some of the gold. I didn't sell any of the gold. I could sell, mm -hmm. I had a farm, I had a hundred acre farm for investment purposes. I sold that um, and uh, for startup capital. And then I sold about 90% of my Bitcoin. Okay. Regrettably. Um, right. <laughs> so I said the first time I bought and I basically owned it straight through 2013 to present. I've always owned it. Um, but it's only been in the last probably, I don't know, six months, I would say that it's really, I think, and it, I think it's coincided with a lot of people. This, I, I got the energy, I got the energy value proposal, if you will right away. What I didn't understand was the technology side. I didn't understand um, the elegance of the technology side. You start seeing all these other coins go out. I never invested the time to look at the difference between it and others. And so I just, quite frankly, I never had the confidence, uh, the information background to have the confidence really to um, uh, to be bigger than I was. So it was always, you know, a 2% position, a 1% position, a 3%. It was never more than that. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it was fine. And now, now it's, now it's, now it's a bit bigger than that. Uh, but that was to me, it was, you know, as I look back and it's funny, which I'm sure everybody, everybody has that kind of feeling about yeah. it. Oh, I missed it. Right. I got it right away, the energy side, but I didn't get the technology side. And that to me was why it was never bigger than it was up until more recently. Yeah. So by the energy side, you mean just that, that money, in order to maintain its value over time, it needs to be hard to produce, right? So either oil-based or gold-backed money, uh, there needs to be some kind of energy input on this side of the equation uh, so that the other side of the equation can kind of balance out in terms of the value uh, purchasing power, I guess, uh, on the other side of the equation. Yeah, effectively. I mean, if you look, I just look at it as my life is finite. I wish it wasn't, but it is. I've got finite amount of time. I've got a finite amount of work and effort I can put in. And that is uh, my, my work. My time is energy expended. And oil is just energy expended. Electricity is just energy expended. And to the extent that, has, you know, once you read enough of the history books, when governments get over indebted, yeah. they always do the same thing. They, they get their way out of it by basically stealing your time back from you, except my time's finite. So 
ultimately, I want a money that has an energy component, a, a, a basically a, a, a peg to energy. Um, and the way we've written about it a lot was historically people say, well, we can't go back to a gold standard. I, I said, I agree. Uh, what I've always said, the fix to the system was you would peg gold to oil at a fixed rate. So instead of pegging gold to dollars, that doesn't work. Uh, we did that for a long time. And then from 71 up until about 2003, maybe not 71, but from about 70, 73 to 03, so nearly 30 years, we effectively pegged dollars to oil in a range. If you look, the price of oil went from 15 bucks to 30 bucks for 30 years. It never really traded outside of that range. And when it went above 30 bucks, the Fed was tightening. And when it went below 15 bucks, the Fed was loosening. So the Fed was effectively managing Fed funds to keep oil in a range in dollar terms for that 30 year period of time. You could see it clear as day on charts if you look at it. So we went from pegging dollars to gold to pegging oil to gold or, or dollars to gold to pegging dollars to oil. And the gold system broke, and then in 0405, the, the oil pegged uh, range, you know, the oil range peg of uh, to dollars broke, and we've been sort of free floating ever since. Um, and to me, the 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 solution was always peg gold to peg gold to oil. So if you come out and just say oil is, you know, it's it's you know, gold is a thousand barrels of oil, and and that's any any oil transactions have to settle in gold at a thousand barrels per ounce, then every country, every person can decide. So if the United States says, hey, we, we've got a whole bunch of shale at 60 bucks, then and, and we can be energy independent. Hey, great. Then gold's 60,000 bucks for you. Now, if you are the Saudis or you're the Russians, hey, we've got nothing but oil. We're, we don't need it. This We can, you know, we can, we, we'll, we'll have it, you know, Two bucks. All right. So gold is two thousand bucks in Russia, and it's sixty thousand in America. Well, that implies a collapse in the dollar against the ruble. But the right. point is, is particularly as as this is a Bitcoin show, the point is that it's the same dynamic. You're basically tying that. You're pegging. Yep. The outcome to the energy, right? It's a gold. Bitcoin is effectively pegging gold to oil at a floating rate, right? Or, or at, at a fixed rate, whatever the cost of electricity is, then you can decide what you want to do. But you're you're taking out that risk of your time, of the authorities stealing your time that I referred yep. to earlier. And so that's how I've always kind of approached it. And, and I think my thought process on the gold oil stuff made it really easy for me to understand the value proposition as it relates to Bitcoin with the tie to energy. Um, right. Like uh, my my black hole on the whole thing, regrettably, was the technologist side. I just, you know, I didn't have the background to really understand the elegance of it and how it would outcompete other coins. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's like it takes a force of nature, right? That something outside of man's control. So either the amount of gold that we can extract from the earth every year, or so um, same thing with oil and the energy that is required to extract both of those things from the earth um, is is sort of a constant or at least not something that humans can change and so it uh takes the power out of the hands of a centralized authority and currently right now the federal reserve bank of the united states um and that's bitcoin is the same thing right we're using energy to create money and it's an energy intensive process 
when you so you, you know you were talking about how you didn't really approach it with the technical understanding but I assume you have like a basic understanding of like the the uh difficulty adjustment which is really interesting uh which gold and oil can't have obviously um you know there's more and more of an incentive to mine gold or to extract oil from the ground if the price goes up um but the difficulty of the mining doesn't necessarily change in accordance with that incentive um, so what do you think about the, the difficulty adjustment, you know, every two weeks we adjust based on, uh, trying to target that 10 minute block block time. Um, does, is that an improvement on energy based money? Do you think, or, uh, or not? In, I think it's ultimately depends on what you want to solve for. I think if you want to solve for the hardness of the money, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think it is. Uh, yeah. If you want to solve for flexibility relative to um, human population growth or other externalities, then there are those that would argue gold is still superior. Um, mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think it's easier to just solve for hardness of money. And if that's the case, then yeah, I think that is an improvement on it. Um, you know, historically, gold had that was the, before the technology side of it. Gold had its own uh, difficulty adjustment, right? It's it's you know, a hundred years ago, they were picking up chunks of gold, huge chunks of gold off the ground, and you know, in Cal maybe 150 years ago in California and in Colorado, and now you got to go two three miles down for it. And so there's this natural uh, difficulty adjustment that's always existed with it. The other thing that was always true of it was that its supply grew at call it one to one point, one to two percent uh, over time, Kager, long term. And up until 1850, from the time of Christ until 1850, human population grew roughly one percent Kager. So those two things pretty much um, moved along together. And so what happened in 1850 was with the advent of fossil fuels really expanding uh, a massive un, un, you know, unseen in history up to that point productivity boom uh human population responded so human population after growing a percent kager for nearly 1900 years proceeded over the next 150 years to grow six percent kager and so i think in no small part a lot of what the, the, the craziness we've seen in terms of human interactions since 1850 have been trying as it relates in particular to economics and, and geopolitics has been around trying to marry this 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 old you know the gold standard where supplies are growing one and uh the the uh, at, uh the human population uh, which is growing six and which productivity is rapid rising rapidly mm -hmm. you get this deep fundamental mismatch if you don't let the price of gold float in yep. fiat terms and the whole time when you when you peg gold to fiat and then your population grows six percent your productivity goes up a bunch it's very deflationary it creates a whole bunch of problems they if they would have just let the price of gold float in fiat terms it have been fine all along when again to float in fiat terms you basically have to peg the gold to the energy just basically say hey it's not it's not 35 but you know it's not 35 bucks an ounce it's you know, it's it's twenty or a hundred barrels, you know, per ounce, and adjust that as the supplies of energy go up. Uh, right. Bitcoin sort of does all that on its own, um, yeah. and 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 so 
under that was my sort of base of understanding when when I first saw Bitcoin. And so when I when <laughs> that's why I say when, when I saw it from the energy side, I go, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. Like yeah, uh, that's uh, um, you know the, the, the that's 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 sort of how I've thought about it. Yeah, uh, it, it, I've it's a really interesting perspective and way to approach or like think about Bitcoin um, that I hadn't really seen before. And I see a few comments in there that to the same extent uh, that, that it's framing it from the, uh, you know, comparing it to gold and oil. And I hadn't thought about the idea of pegging gold to oil as a potential solution uh, and letting the fiat float against it. That's fascinating to me. And having uh, an invention that sort of does makes that solution happen elegantly and is also, you know, digital and has all of the advantages of being able to transport, you know, for virt virtually for your very little cost relatively to transporting a physical, you know, physical goods uh, around the world, uh, very short amount of time. So we've seen this idea uh, that Bitcoin is a long-term store of value for all those reasons, right? Short-term volatility is there in U.S. dollar terms, and that's going to be there for a while. Uh, Sailor, Michael Sailor was on CNBC this morning, and uh, he, his uh, segment closed out with him basically saying, like, look, you know, Bitcoin's a trillion-dollar asset right now. Uh, the next stop is gold. It's going to eat up gold's market cap uh, because it's, you know, a million times better than gold is what he usually says. And then it's going to eat up uh, you know, like debt-based monetary premiums. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, it's going to go to uh, slowly to a hundred trillion. But once it gets to be a $10 trillion asset, the volatility will largely decrease. And then it'll be kind of a steady march up as monetary premiums come out and realize, hey, this is a better place to put this store of value. This is not really a store of value uh, asset. It's really should be, uh, a, you know, we should be valuating a company based on its fundamentals and not speculating uh, that it'll be able to hold my hold the value of my money better than cash or bonds or whatever. Um, and and so the volatility will decrease slowly over time. Uh, do you? I mean, do you see Bitcoin growing in this way, becoming a global store of value to such an extent? Uh, or do you see the, you know, the traditional sort of uh, other roads of investments, other relatively scarce assets like stocks and bonds and real estate maintaining that store of value, those some store of value premiums? Do you see it growing that big? Um, I, I think it on some level depends what policymakers do. And... I think if they don't change anything, if they leave rates at zero and they amp up the fiscal and we, 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 once you get to a sovereign debt bubble the way we are, uh, as we talked about earlier, there's a great chart from the IMF that we've used in our research for clients that shows you go back 150 years when sovereign debt levels as a percent of GDP get as high as they are now in the developed world, there's only three ways out of it. You either default you have high inflation or financial repression where basically they hold rates down and let inflation rise or you hyperinflate. That's it. Right. That's the, those are the only three ways out. And what's interesting about this chart in particular is it breaks it down to developed markets and, 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 and emerging markets. And so the emerging markets saw this in the eighties. They saw this in the nineties. Uh, it's been a long, long time since we saw it in developed markets. And so where I'm going with this, I guess, is, is, is two ways. If 
nothing changes, if they just kind of keep trying to get out of this the way sovereigns have, then I think, yeah, to me, you know, I do I think Bitcoin is going to surpass, would, would, would Bitcoin surpass gold's market cap in that case? I do think it would. Do I think that, I, I continue to think, with all respect, to, due respect to Michael Saylor, I think I would much rather hold gold, you know, the 12 trillion in gold than the 128 trillion in the bond market that's in the global bond markets. Like that to me is the real, that to me, because look, it is, it is in a number of ways, Bitcoin better than gold? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple ways in which gold still does better. We can talk about those later, uh, those sure. change, but the biggest is, is gold's face value can rise. Gold can go to a million bucks. There's no reason it can't. The Fed could make it go to a million bucks tomorrow. They could come out tomorrow and say, we now value gold at a million bucks, and here's a million bucks fiat, and it's on our balance sheet. Oh, by the way, the U.S. is completely out of its debt crisis. Um, <laughs> the dollar's right. gotten hammered. Bitcoin's going to go to the moon, too. Make no mistake. But they can't do that with bonds, right? So to me, I, I, I think the real, when you talk about if the status quo continues, the real interesting thing is not... Bitcoin eating gold, it's Bitcoin eating the bond market. Now, the challenge is that's the bond market. That's a national security imperative, particularly when it comes to uh, sovereign debt, the treasury market. Yeah. So there's a couple things. If you're a policymaker, you either let this thing happen. You know, Bitcoin is really a you know a wrinkle in the in the matrix. Um, it is. Yeah. I've equated it to. The existence of Bitcoin is like the, you know, the fiat system is the Titanic. The global monetary yeah. system is a Titanic. And the fiat system, if you've seen the movie, the James Cameron movie, where they detail how, you know, in the computer model, how the, the uh, iceberg made little dots along the hull right at the front. And that was it. And yeah. that was enough. Bitcoin's just like the little dots in the hull of the Titanic. It's letting water in. And there's these airtight water tanks. And, hey, we're fine. We're not going to sink. But they never cap the airtight water tank. So they're going to go over one and then the ship's going to go down a little more over another. And pretty soon it's, you know, the, the, the ass of the ship's going to be up in the air and, you know, yep. Rose is going to be hanging off the back and Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to freeze and die. It's going to be a tragedy. So <laughs> the um, Bitcoin is ultimately creating leakage here. And by leakage, I mean, I, as an investor, and moving capital into Bitcoin. Your clients are moving cap capital into Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is effectively, by his actions, encouraging corporate America to defund the United States government yeah. and put their money in Bitcoin instead of into treasuries, instead of into the banking system. Yep. And that's fine. The question then is, the, what's the response, right? The, because the, right. The, those are the dots in the hull. The way that goes, the, the flooding that leaves it with leaves the SS, you know, U.S. Treasury market with its with its rear in the air and 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 Leonardo DiCaprio freezing to death is either rates rise to reattract capital back to the Treasury market, which breaks the economy because the U.S. government can't afford those, the housing market can't afford those, debt levels can't afford those, or the Fed buys them with printed money. Okay which accelerates this whole process, just like we saw with where the faster the Titanic sank, the faster the Titanic sank. And that's what we're talking about here. So if the, the, the Bitcoin is really, like, like I said, the hole in, the, 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 the in, the, in the hull of the Titanic in the movie. 
so how is the reaction? Do policymakers just let that happen? And I have, I've said, I think there's a real case that there is some quorum of policymakers that know this needs to happen. It's going to happen. It's now in our interest, because quite frankly, from a geopolitical perspective, China is using the existing dollar system against us to our disadvantage. Yes. Um, and we should so, dive into a little. We should dive into that in a little bit more detail as well. We absolutely. Continue. Yeah. So I, I, I think there's so, I think there's an element of policymakers say, hey, why not let it happen? We're going to end up ahead for any number of reasons. It's you know, but what Bitcoin will do? Well, Bitcoin will effectively hyperinflate the U.S. Mm-hmm. financial system, yeah. uh, and and that sounds hyperbolic, except. If you look at the price of Bitcoin from October to today, the dollar has hyperinflated for five months against Bitcoin uh, they, using the IMF definition, which is 50% per month. Uh, so we've seen a little glimpse of it, uh, but that's where that would all potentially go if Bitcoin is just left to its own devices. The flip side is, is if policymakers decide they don't want the treasury market or they decide this gets too far, they can't shut down the technology. They can, in theory, close off the on and on ramps. But now you're talking about the United States implementing capital controls effectively in a trillion dollar plus asset. Presumably, it would be higher than um, if they don't have cooperation from abroad. That's a problem. Um, they're in a competition with China, so it's very possible they won't have cooperation. So that, to me, is um, a little bit of the other side of of like you just don't know what the what the 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 policymaker side is going to be, but broadly speaking, um, I, I I I think a lot of what I, I agree with a lot of what Michael says. I, to me, I think the real the real bogey is not gold. The real bogey is the is the, is the debt market. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know we there's a Bitcoiner named Pierre Rochard. He's been around for quite some time, and he found co-founded the Nakamoto Institute. Uh, which is based down in Austin, Texas, and really has a kind of an education mandate. Wrote a piece called um, about a speculative attack on the U.S. dollar, and what Michael Saylor is doing, like you're alluding to, there is is effectively that it's taking out debt in the bad money, uh, and and buying the good money, and accelerating the process of the death of the bad money and the adoption of the good money. Um, this could, I mean, like you said, this could definitely be seen as uh, as an attack on on the government uh, and the fiat standard that, or the U.S. dollar standard, global global reserve currency status that you know confers a lot of power onto the U.S. government. You can argue that uh, it's you know responsible for much of the U.S. government uh, you know access right to to money or to debt to be able to fund its military and uh, social service programs, et cetera. Um, and I definitely run into quite a few people who, you know, are concerned about that. Like, what does that do to this nation, right? And you brought up China and how China is using the dollar system against us. Um, so it sounds like you think that maybe being friendly or having a dovish approach toward Bitcoin on the U.S. Uh, government's side of things might be a good idea despite this you know appearance that a speculative attack on the dollar would be bad for America so can you tease that out for us there's a lot of complex sort of macro economic and and sociopolitical uh, considerations there but I wonder what your thoughts are yeah so to be clear I don't know anything on this front so I'm it's more I'm just watching 
what I'm yeah. seeing. And I'm, you know, every day that goes by that Michael Saylor does not get audited by the IRS in a big way mm-hmm. makes me think that there is a at least an element of Washington that is that has tacit approval of what he's doing. Every day that goes by that he doesn't get a knock on the door. He's 25 minutes from Washington, D.C. He's probably 15 minutes from the CIA. There's no knock on the door. He's just keeps on going and going. The more that happens, the more I just again, I have no proof. I don't know anything. I'm just watching. I I know the system as it was structured. I know how sensitive the U.S. government has been about dollar hegemony for a long time. I know they're not dumb. I know they understand what this is. The longer they go without a response, uh, the more um, the more I think there's an element where they are tacitly approving or they're looking the other way. Now, why would they look the other way? Mm-hmm. I think when you take an objective look at the dollar system as it is structured now, we can see what China has done over the last 20 years. It is people say, well, we're, we're still winning or you can't debate. Over the last 20 years, China has won. They, were, they owned 60 billion in treasuries in 01. They own still a trillion three and they haven't bought any in seven years. Um, their relative growth rates, their cities, their infrastructure, their relative military strength to ours, all of these things have massively closed the gap. Um, the, um, if you look at the euro dollar system and what China is doing, again, objectively, China is borrowing dollars. They are then lending those dollars at a spread along the Belt and Road that is increasing their influence uh, with uh, across Eurasia, uh, geopolitically and economically. They are often lending those dollars against hard asset collateral. And so China is gaining increasing control of the finite assets, finite reserves, finite commodities that we were talking about uh, earlier. And remember, the overriding fundamental mismatch that got me interested in Bitcoin and got or in gold in the first place, and that I it was the aha moment for me with Bitcoin was, you can't have this currency system where they're creating unlimited amounts of currency at a time when you were sort of peak cheap commodities on the other side. And so what China has been doing has been basically leveraging this trade. They borrow the dollars and they're buying up the commodities and the hard assets. And then when their borrowers, these other emerging markets, run into dollar shortages, the Fed comes in with swap lines, hands the other emerging markets dollars, who those emerging markets then hand those dollars back to China. So basically, through the existing euro dollar system, the Fed is a backstopping, allowing, supplementing, subsidizing China, buying up these finite assets, increasing China's power, increasing China's energy security, increasing China's geopolitical power, economic status, funding China's military, all of these things through the euro dollar system. Mm-hmm. And, and and the cherry on top of the entire ridiculous Sunday is the U.S. military protects the trade lanes for China to bring all this stuff back. Right. We can't. People say, well, we can attack the trade lanes. No, we can't. I mean, we could, but that that attack is the end of the dollar system right there. That's it. That, that's that's game over. So that they can't. So I know that that is understood in certain circles in Washington. That I do know. And yeah. so if I know that, then you say, okay, what else is China doing to subvert the dollar system? Well, China and Russia and others are buying gold, right? Like that makes sense. Like I said before, if you are in this finite energy, finite peak cheap commodity regime, 
it makes no sense to store your surpluses in dollars with rates at zero or near zero. I mean, U.S. Treasury issuance since 2008 has grown 9% CAGR. The rate hasn't been above three on the 30-year, on the barely, right? So right. You, can't, you can't afford to store your finite surpluses in debt that is never yielding above three when the supply of that debt's growing nine. CAGR doesn't make any sense. You're better off holding gold, which has grown CAGR, what? Oh, 9% since 1971, right? So they're using gold. Now, so what do I do as America? Well, I either start reserving gold, but again, the day the Fed comes out and says we're buying gold or the Treasury comes out and says we're buying gold, that's the end of the system as it's structured. And that's, for reasons I talked about before, probably a good thing. But, but the other thing you could do, if, if, if I was working for the U.S. government and they said, Luke, what would you do to combat this? Mm -hmm. It's simple. I'd, I'd, I'd let Bitcoin run. I would, I would have a harder currency than gold, and I'd yeah. let it run. I would let it be, and I would just stand aside. You know, benevolent, you know, or, 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 or benevolent uh, um, uh, neglect. And yeah. I would let Bitcoin run. And I would make sure some of it was on my balance sheet somewhere. And that's yeah. a piece. I've seen people say, well, we have some from what we've confiscated from the, from the, from the, uh, the, the Silk Road. Maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I would, the way you win is you say, okay, fine. Russia, you, China, you want gold on your balance sheet? Great. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have the American settlement system. We're the American economy. And we're going to have rule of law. We're going to have, um, you know. All the stuff that sort of got America to where it was, and we're going to use Bitcoin to settle. We're going to use the hardest asset, and it's going to float in dollars. It's going to float in everything. It's going to be completely transparent. It's going to be harder than gold. We all have seen, everyone on this show, I'm sure, has seen what Bitcoin has done in gold terms, right? It's gone up mm -hmm. and up and up over yep. time. I'm like, you know what? You guys want to own gold? Great. You do gold. We'll do Bitcoin. And in 10 years, we'll buy back all your gold from you. Amazing. So what would the how would the us dollar trade against bitcoin like if you let it float what determines the us dollar's purchasing power or uh, i guess yeah conversion rate between gold or between bitcoin and dollar i mean is that essentially what we're doing now but you just let it run i think we might be i don't know but but you would expect the dollar to hyperinflate against bitcoin and it started yeah. in october and we'll see now you know Hyperinflations, if you look at what, if you, and I, I've written about this a number of times to FFTT clients, what Bitcoin is doing in dollars and in all fiat by extension is no different than what the German Weimar Mark did, Reichsmark yeah. did in gold terms. If you look, it went from zero to a trillion Reichsmarks. And while it did it, it was like this all the way up. Volatility was yeah. inhumane. If you were borrowing money, so if, 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 if you said, if you came to someone in 1920 and said, in the next three years, the German mark is going to zero. The German Reichsmark is going to zero. What should you do? And the answer is, oh, I'm going to borrow as much as I can in Reichsmarks, and I'm going to buy real assets, et cetera, and, and away you go. Yep. Yeah, and, and I once thought that way, but that, there was this great chart by Dan Oliver at Myrmecana that I've cited repeatedly, and, and God bless him because it's a beautiful chart. It's, it's a tremendous piece of information. The real answer is, is buy the harder currency, lever a little if you want, but be darn sure you can survive the, the, the inhumane volatility, because the reality is, is it's such a political change. The volatility is just ex extraordinary. So I think what we're watching is, is 
fiat currencies hyperinflating against Bitcoin. Now, is it possible I'm fitting this, you know, what Bitcoin's doing to the narrative and, and ascribing a motive to the government that doesn't exist? 100% that's possible. Again, I am not privy to anything there. Yeah. But like I said, the longer this goes, like if, if a bald guy in Cleveland can figure out that this is what Saylor is doing is effectively attacking the treasury market. There's guys in Washington, there's guys in the CIA that know this and no one's doing yeah. anything. So there's something there the longer this goes with nothing being said. So that, that's something I'm watching with great interest. Like I said, if I, if, it was, if I was tasked with it, once China got to a certain size, once the U.S. debt level got to a certain size, once the baby boom generation got to a certain age, the math is the math. There is, there, there is no getting around the math. And right. so then it becomes, okay, what's the solution? China and Russia are like, we're gone. We'll borrow as many dollars as we can, and we're going to buy gold, and we're going to... And so we're left with this, how do we get out of this? To me, Bitcoin is a way out. Uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what is called Triffin's Dilemma, right? The, the global reserve currency where everyone's like, yeah, we'll take those dollars and we'll buy, we'll buy hard assets because everything is denominated, all the debt's dominating US dollars. So if, if the US dollar does hyperinflate against Bitcoin and there's so much dollar denominated debt out there, what happens? I mean, do is there some kind of debt jubilee, or do does debt get re-denominated in Bitcoin uh, so that it can you know get repaid in that? In, in some sense, I mean, this, there seems like there would be some unavoidable chaos at least for a while. Yeah, I think chaos is on the menu. I mean, I came into this year with <laughs> and I said, look, if 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 you think that you know the chaos, if you're shorting chaos because I actually literally said shorting, if you're shorting chaos because the calendar rolled over and because the occupant of the White House has changed, uh, I got bad news. Um, yeah. yeah, there's gonna yeah. be some chaos, I think. And I think it's gonna get worse than it was in 2020, actually. Um, I don't know how, but I just, I think it's going to because the tectonic forces we're talking about are so powerful and so diametrically opposed when you're talking about what the US wants, what China wants within the US, what the sort of establishment dollar-centric banking system wants and what the, uh, defense establishment wants in terms of its ability to maintain operational uh, ability uh, in terms of its supply chains uh, to, to do what it needs to do uh, per mandate. Yeah. Um, if the dollar hike continues to hyperinflate against Bitcoin, I don't think you'll ever see contract ever is a very strong term. I don't. I think we're a long way from 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 contracts being re-denominated in Bitcoin. Where I think you will start to get to is there will be a tipping point where people will begin to recognize what's happening and will begin mm -hmm. to adjust pricing of assets accordingly. Um, so right now, you know, God love you if you if you've owned Bitcoin for the last year everything is stupid cheap. Housing is stupid cheap, et cetera. I would expect in places where there's a greater awareness of Bitcoin, et cetera. So out on the coasts, um, you may start to see people in their own minds, at least go, look, all right, Bitcoin has done this. You know, they may not list it for, Hey, I want it. I want, you know, two Bitcoin for my house, but they may in their own minds be thinking that way. And so a house that you'll start to, the long-winded way of saying the inflation will start showing up elsewhere, I think, yeah. uh, over time. I don't think we're there. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. I, I know a lot of Bitcoiners who are starting 
have, or maybe even for a long time thinking that way and using Bitcoin as their unit of account. Um, I certainly do for the most part. I mean, I think I, I do the conversion and I've gotten quite good at it, knowing the current price and doing the conversion uh, between between Bitcoin and, and dollars. Um, and so double think, like, should I, should we really go out to eat tonight or should we just stay home and eat those leftovers or eat that uh, meal from last night? Right. And it's, it does start to sort of change your behavior because there is so much potential upside to the money. And even when that volatility, that potential volatile upside starts to subside, I think just having a deflationary money starts to change the way people think. So another question I often get is, you know, if we have a deflationary money, uh, how does that change the way we do business? Because, you know, access to debt is going to be more expensive. Uh, and so it'll be harder to build a business. Uh, and, and I mean, I have my answer to it, but I would love to hear what you have to say when people say, you know, deflationary money is bad uh, for what for whatever reasons. Maybe you can sort of reframe or frame that argument and then uh, give any response you might have to it. Yeah, so I can see clear to just setting aside any real politique or, or uh, political economy angle. I could see clear to the point where Bitcoin basically overtakes the dollar and people transact in sats or whatever the case might be. I could see how that would happen. That's, that's what should happen if you look at um, you know, in a vacuum stronger, harder currency versus not uh, deflationary money. The challenge in that for me is the political realities of how that, how that handcuffs the government in providing certain safety nets over time. Uh, the transition from where we are now to there and what that really implies from a political standpoint. Um, because what you'd really be talking about is slashing defense, slashing entitlements dramatically in that world where, and so where I've always, where I shake out for the foreseeable future is, and, and it's interesting, I'm seeing the comments here about Burry's recent quote about Bitcoin, about Triffin's dilemma, because this, this yeah. ties into it, which is the solution that Triffin's dilemma has been hiding in plain sight the whole time. And that is Triffin's dilemma is using the same currency and and the same issuer as both the currency and the reserve primary reserve asset right so you're the the, the problem was not so much the dollar the problem is the treasury bond as primary reserve asset right and so as you incur as you incur more debts to supply the dollars to the world because of that dollar reserve asset eventually the treasury, there, there's concerns about the, the solvency of the treasury, concerns about the dollar, the whole system falls in on itself. That's Triffin's dilemma. Yep. The solution of Triffin's dilemma is simply separating the currency from the reserve asset. Make the reserve asset a neutral reserve asset, make it float in price and let the market set that price. And so, look, you want to spend in dollars? Government wants to supply dollars to entitlement programs. Government wants to fight a war. Great. Go spend the dollars. Print the money have the dollars. But you can't do that in a system where gold is pegged to the dollar, which is why that broke down. You can't do that in a system where oil is pegged to the dollar, which is why that system broke down in part. 
you could do it in a system where gold is pegged to oil because now, hey, if the military wants to invade the Middle East and gold goes to 150 bucks, gold goes up and savers in gold terms, you know, continue, the currency is is reflected. Bitcoin does the same thing. And so when when uh, when, when Burry said, you know, that Bitcoin doesn't solve for for doesn't solve Triffin's dilemma, I actually quote retweeted it. I said, does it a high enough price? You make yep, Bitcoin exactly. pay it 100% it does. Um, yep. That's where I think this is going, at least for the foreseeable future, which is you fix the problem with the system, the way you fix, the way you stop what China's doing to us in terms of using the system against us is you separate the reserve asset, the primary reserve asset from the primary global reserve currency. That's all you have to do. Uh, and, and this so is what we've done. Do? I don't care. What's that? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is what we've done in history too, right? I mean, we've had gold and it's floated against other currencies and you could issue currencies and have a national currency and issue it, but it there has a conversion rate to gold. Uh, you know, let's say like the florin was sort of the reserve currency uh, in, in that era, uh, the Renaissance era. There were other currencies uh, floating around uh, Europe at the time, but then uh, it, they floated freely against the florin. And so that's where people would settle eventually, right? I mean, it's the same same idea. It's, it's, a, it's a natural market phenomenon uh, and, and it has historical precedent. It's not something new or a new idea. No, it's and it's and the critical thing is you have to let the market set the rate for that neutral reserve asset. And you have to yeah. be willing to accept what the market's telling you, right? So if you have a floating neutral reserve asset and, you know, the U.S. does a 1960s playbook, right, where we do great society and we do, you know, we do Vietnam. So we've got Johnson's guns and butter. The way that reflected in the system at the time was a run on gold. And because the price could not adjust, it resulted in supplies of gold being drained. Okay, well, that yeah. was you can read the history books at the time. The head of the BIS, Yel Zilstra, who was a Dutch central banker who flew here and was demanding his gold back from Paul Volcker, who was at Treasury at the time. Um, his When he was the head of the BIS, Zilstra went on to the, be the head of the BIS. He said, they should have just let the dollar float. They should have just let gold float. If they would have revalued gold from 35 to about 150, that'd have been fine. We could have kept that system going. But mm -hmm. they decided to close the gold window, a whole separate discussion. But you have to be willing as a government to accept what that message is. And that's that's part a big part of the reason why gold derivatives have been allowed to expand as much as they have, the un particularly the unallocated gold market in London, which is they just you know, people say, why hasn't gold's price risen? Well, gold demand has risen. It's just the amount of paper derivatives, unallocated paper derivatives have risen faster or as fast. And that's how they've helped manage the price of gold is, you know, if, if someone says, I want $100 million in gold, there's one of two things that can happen. If it's all physical and there's a limit on the amount of leverage that's allowed in that system, then the price of gold is going to go up probably a lot because right now to source $100 million in gold would probably take you a couple of months. And that's what I'm being told. Um, right. But if you wanted to own paper gold, you could call up London. Hey, I want to own 100 million gold. Done. You don't own gold. You own 100 million dollars of gold credit, but you don't own gold. Um, yep. And that doesn't matter till it matters. And that's a political question. And that's been, you know, to Michael Saylor's credit, others in the Bitcoin community, that centralization of the gold is is not a problem. It's something that Bitcoin does in a superior fashion or manages it in a superior fashion relative to gold. And Bitcoin solves for that in a lot of different ways that you guys all know. So I'm not going to rehash here. Um, but if you let that neutral reserve asset float in all currencies, 
then when the US does a 1960s, the dollar collapses against Bitcoin and other currencies that are managed more responsible don't collapse against Bitcoin, then the, through the Bitcoin connection, the neutral reserve pivot, the dollar is going to collapse against those other currencies. And that may or may not be a good thing. Maybe it makes us more competitive. Hey, great. Maybe it makes us not able to afford anybody's imports and we start starving people. Not good, right? So there's, there's, it's, it's a political question, but ultimately Triffin's dilemma is very simple to fix. It's just, uh, and, and for the first time in 70 years, it's actually in the U.S.'s interest to fix certain elements of the U.S. There are still dogmatic politicians and economics uh, or economists that are against it, but uh, I think reality is rapidly catching up to them. Right, right. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think that's an amazing uh, way to look at the, the outlook here for Bitcoin and as a way to sort of resettle the global economy and as Bitcoin as a stabilizing force, essentially through repricing everything, right? In a, in a you know, a, a floating global reserve asset, a neutral reserve asset. And if we have confidence in our economy, uh, in our productivity, our ingenuity, uh, and the businesses that are already built here and, and would be built here uh, based on American ingenuity and, and entrepreneurship, then salt, you know, allowing that to happen and just kind of sitting back and let the process play out would be in America's interest. I mean, we'd, I think we'd see a, a flourishing of business uh, in, in this country. Uh, I think, you know, other parts of the world that are starting to catch up too, but we still have that entrepreneurial, sp entrepreneurial spirit here. We still are kind of a beacon for the world's greatest minds and, that could be slowly drifting away uh, if we, and more quickly, uh, if we don't maybe go this route and kind of accept Bitcoin as a neutral reserve asset. Um, that's the way I'm kind of looking at it. So yeah, maybe it makes, it does make sense. It's in America's interest for a lot of us. Um, we do see politicians coming very vocal uh, about, uh, about Bitcoin. And one of them is on the, the Senate Banking Committee at this point. So that's very interesting. That is very interesting indeed. I agree. Yeah. Uh, this was fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. I see you have a couple of books sitting behind you, the Mr. X interviews. I was wondering if you could just give us a quick rundown on those, on those books. I have not personally read them. Uh, I saw them sitting behind you. And so I looked them up and they look really interesting. Do you mind giving us a rundown on what those, sure. uh, those books are? Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, Mr. X interviews are two books. I'm, I'm currently working on the third. There's volumes one and two. You can find them on Amazon. But the basis of the books are a uh, uh, interview with uh, conducted in the Socratic method with a fictional sovereign creditor, foreign sovereign creditor of the United States. And it talks through a number of the different issues around the, 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 the faults in the money system and uh, how the system is evolving on a real-time basis. And so um, the basis of the books were something, uh, one of my best relationships on Wall Street reached out to me in early 2016 and, and said, you should write a report in, in, in a mock interview fashion uh, with a foreign sovereign creditor, a fictional foreign sovereign creditor, and just answer. And, and it allows you to really explain uh, a number of the different things you're talking about in in a more uh, conversational manner and and to hypothesize in a way that I couldn't in, in in our research because our research is very fact based you know fact 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 and here's a potential range of outcomes so it was a, allowed me to elucidate on some of the speculations for, for uh, or speculate more on on 
why certain things might be happening. And so at any rate, one report turned into a series of reports with Mr. X. And so we've aggregated some of those reports and added some other stuff for the books. And, and so Mr. X, the first one starts in early 2016. And the second one, I think, starts in late 2017 and goes through early 2019. And so I'm I'm due here uh, to get going on volume three. But like I said, they're available on Amazon. We've gotten great feedback from it. And that's that's the basis for those is is the Socratic method interview with uh, with a foreign, fictional foreign sovereign creditor of the U.S. I love that idea. It sounds like a really fun way to digest this material. So I will definitely be checking it out and looking forward to number three. <laughs> number three has plenty to address uh, 2020, 2021. So yeah, there should for sure. be... Uh, a lot of fire material there. Again, Luke, really appreciate your time. Uh, everybody make sure that you follow Luke out on Twitter. Uh, it's obviously, as you found out today, extremely knowledge knowledgeable on the macro front and, and knows about Bitcoin and uh, is often uh, a, a guest on Preston Pish's show, which you're, if you're not uh, subscribed to the Investors Podcast yet, check that out. Uh, and just kind of right up there in the triumvirate of macro analysts that I consider, uh, you know, are very Bitcoin aware and have a lot to say about uh, how Bitcoin fix it, fits into our global macro environment. Uh, I say that would be Preston and Luke and Lynn Alden. So uh, Preston and Lynn have been on the show several times. And I'm glad to finally get the, uh, the third part of the triumvirate <laughs> on the show. Appreciate your time, man. Absolutely. All Thank right. you very much for having me on. It was a fun talk. Thanks, Luke. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us today as well. It was another fantastic episode. Luke is is great. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to this channel. Uh, we strive to put some of the best Bitcoin content on YouTube out there for you all. So subscribe. We do this show every Tuesday. We usually have two guests. Mark Moss, our second guest who was supposed to be with us today, uh, didn't make it, but that's just fine. Had a fantastic conversation one-on-one -on -one with Luke today. Uh, so subscribe, uh, like this video, make sure it spreads around uh, YouTube and uh, spreads this Bitcoin knowledge. Uh, we also have another show on Fridays called Swan Lounge. It's more of a hangout with Bitcoiners, uh, kind of Friday afternoon. Let's talk about what happened in the week and and uh, just, just shoot it uh, with some Bitcoiners. Uh, we are also on Clubhouse uh, helping out to run the Cafe Bitcoin Club with a lot of other Bitcoiners around the globe. So check out uh, the Cafe Bitcoin Club on Clubhouse, uh, which is a fast-growing audio-only social network. It's still iOS only at this point, but I hear rumors that it'll be out on Android relatively soon, which is great because we want to get as many Bitcoiners in there as possible. It's been a fantastic platform to, to educate uh, new coiners. Uh, so check that out. Um, we also have Bitcoin TV on this very YouTube station, YouTube channel, 24-7 uh, stream of some of the best Bitcoin content in the world for you, just one after the other. We also have a nice little price ticker and market cap ticker down there so you can keep your uh, keep up on your price fix while you're learning about Bitcoin. And uh, of course, go to swanbitcoin.com. Start paying yourself in Bitcoin if you're not yet. Talk to your family and friends about paying themselves in Bitcoin. You deserve it. It's a money that respects you and your time. So and as we talked about today, it's playing an increasingly significant role in the global monetary stage. And it's important to have some, have some Bitcoin and uh, accumulate as much as you feel comfortable accumulating. We make that easy at swanbitcoin.com. You can go to swanbitcoin.com slash satoshi. Uh, get 10 free bucks dropped in your account and uh, you can make your first purchase. You don't have to do anything really. Uh, just sign up 
and uh, give it a shot. Uh, we'll give you 10 bucks to make your first Bitcoin purchase and see what you think about the product. So a risk-free trial of sorts. Uh, so, you know, make it happen. You can go to swanbitcoin.com slash enlist as well uh, for our referral program. It's called Swan Force. And we have 100 people a day or so joining the Swan Force. Uh, and we have, I think it's a fantastic deal. You get 25% of Swan's fees on every purchase that your referrals make for three years. It's, it's adding up to some meaningful sats for a lot of our Swan Force uh, members as Swan is really taking off uh, and, and growing. A lot of those uh, new members are coming in through the Swan Force. And so we're paying out a lot of referral fees and sats, those sweet, sweet sats. And I'm hearing from people that this is turning into meaningful money. And of course, if, if Bitcoin appreciates the way we think it will, then, you know, that those sats that you're earning through the Swan Force could be extremely meaningful to you 10, 15, 20 years from now. So join the Swan Force. Start talking to your family and friends. The case is easier to make now that, you know, numbers going up. Um, and there's so much educational material out there to pass along their way and get them just just start stacking a little bit. Swan's an easy sell, five bucks a week. You know that's all it takes. Just get your get your foot wet, dip your toe right in there, and just let number go up. Let Bitcoin do its thing like it's done with all of us, and and uh, teach people what money really is, and teach people why they need some Bitcoin in their lives or on their balance sheets if you're a, if you're a corporation. And as I mentioned at the top, we have launched Swan Private. It is our white glove service for high net worth individuals, corporations, trusts, uh, entities that are looking to accumulate meaningful positions of Bitcoin. Uh, so check out swanbitcoin.com slash private. You'll get direct access to our Swan Private team uh, that will help you accomplish whatever goals you have in mind and uh, some other perks as well. So you'll see those listed out at swanbitcoin.com slash private. Super excited about what's going on at Swan. Uh, things are just absolutely taking off like Bitcoin itself. Really excited uh, to be a part of the team and, and to be a part of this, uh, this really exploding company. So hope that if you're not already, we can have uh, you check us out and have you part of the Swan squad and just join us on this ride. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Join us Friday for Swan Lounge. Take care, everyone. Thanks to Luke for joining us. You can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Grauman. That's L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. I am at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast and found it useful. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts at youtube.com slash swan signal. Head over there, subscribe, turn on notifications. We have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often work in some questions from listeners. While you're there, remember to check out Bitcoin TV, a 24-7 stream of the best Bitcoin content available on the web. You can subscribe to this podcast, if you are not already, at swansignalpodcast.com. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys, instant buys, and wires up to $100 million. 